Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Clippings podcast, where we review nail literature and present it to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hey, April. My article today is titled, Evaluation of a Community Education Tool for Detection of Nail Melanoma by Nail Salon Technicians, and it is currently online ahead of print as of September 2021 in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. The authors are Lindsay Gagan, Helen Bowie, Sherry Lipner, Nat Jelinek, and Julie Murvak. The background is that while nail melanoma is rare, representing between 0.7 and 3.5% of all melanoma, it has a high mortality rate because it's often late stage at presentation and aggressive. Nail technicians in nail salons might be the ideal people to act as screeners in the community essentially because they see a lot of nails. The only other research in this area was a study presented as a poster at the AAD national meeting in 2018, which showed that only 8% of a group of 36 English-speaking nail technicians knew the signs of nail melanoma. The current authors performed a pilot study with 54 nail technicians in North Carolina. They investigated the utility of an educational video on nail melanoma screening using a model that had been previously applied to alopecia education for hairstylists. Participants watched a two-minute educational video outlining the warning signs of nail melanoma. This emphasized Hutchinson sign, single-digit longitudinal melanonychia, and nail dystrophy as worrisome features. Before and after the video, the participants used a modified Likert scale to report their likelihood of referring clients to a dermatologist for nail changes based on a series of photos which either showed a biopsy-proven nail melanoma or a benign nail condition like pseudoleukonychia, splinter hemorrhage, or habit tick deformity. And those benign conditions served as kind of a control or a comparison group. All their materials were available in English and Vietnamese. They had a total of 54 respondents, 72 of which, 72% of which completed the full assessment. Um, about three quarters were in English, and the last quarter was in Vietnamese. 83% of the participating nail technicians reported that they had learned about nail disease in training. And interestingly, in this group, there was a negative association between years of experience and whether they recognize the nail melanoma on their pre-video quiz. Uh, The ability of the nail technicians to identify signs of nail melanoma increased in a statistically significant way after the educational video, with nearly twice as many respondents saying they would definitely refer a client when they were shown a photo of a nail melanoma. There was particular improvement in recognition of longitudinal melanonychia and nail dystrophy as worrisome signs. 
there was no increase in likelihood to refer patients for pseudoleukonychia or habit tick deformity, as we would hope, but there was interestingly an increase in being likely to refer for splinter hemorrhage. So this was noted as an area for improvement in the education. After the video, 80% of the respondents rated their confidence in referral for these worrisome signs as high or very high compared to only 49% before the video. The top reasons they were hesitant about referring a patient included fear of being wrong, fear of losing or upsetting a client, and not knowing where to refer clients. The authors conclude that educating nail technicians and equipping them to serve as community screeners has the potential to save lives of patients with nail melanoma. They noted that the longer a technician had been in practice, aka the longer since their training in cosmetic school, the less likely they were to recognize the signs of nail melanoma. Therefore, there's a particular need for continuing med medical education for knowledge retention. They suggest that national organizations like the American Academy of Dermatology could consider building a curriculum for nail technicians. I really like that this group reached out to nail technicians who we don't often directly interact with, but who play an extremely important role in nail health for many of our patients. I think there's a lot of room for improvement in this potential partnership. Some patients refuse to remove their polish even at the doctor's office, so the technician may be the only person who sees their nails. Most of what is published with respect to nail technicians has more to do with acrylates and methacrylates and contact dermatitis of the nail unit, as well as the infectious risks of manicuring. So this avenue with nail unit melanoma was exploring a relatively untouched area in this field. I also thought it was great that they offered their materials in both English and Vietnamese. I found that it's estimated that 40 to 50% of nail technicians in the United States are Vietnamese. So it will be really important to be inclusive of Vietnamese speaking technicians in future education efforts, which I hope will be many. Yeah. I mean, I've read about education with hairstylists on, you know, looking out for signs of melanoma and skin cancers on the scalp, but I haven't seen as much with nail technicians. So I thought this was a really great study. Great. Me too. Uh, Catherine, tell us what you read about. Okay. I chose the article, a survey-based study of physician practices regarding biotin supplementation published in the journal of dermatological treatment in May, 2020. The authors are, and I apologize for my pronunciation here, um, Buktoar Wakas, Alan Wu, Elizabeth Yim, and Sherry Lipner. Some background to this is that in 2017, an FDA safety alert warned that biotin can interfere with lab testing results, which can have serious consequences. The authors of this study assessed biotin prescribing practices and knowledge of adverse effects by distributing a survey to physicians via email. They received 149 responses, 82% of which were dermatologists. 44% of responders reported prescribing biotin, most often for hair and nail disorders, and 40% recommended other biotin-containing supplements, such as Nutrafol and Viviscal. 
approximately 50% knew that a Western diet has sufficient biotin. Most physicians answered correctly that there are no randomized studies showing that biotin improves hair, nail, and skin growth. Over half of providers knew that biotin interferes with troponin and thyroid tests, but few were aware of the other lab interferences, and 20% were unaware of any interference. I looked into the mechanism of biotin's interference uh, and found that it apparently interferes with a biotin streptovidin-based immunoassay in which the biotin antibody or antigen are used as free unbound reagents. This comprehensive review of 374 immunoassays revealed that nearly 60% use this biotin streptovidin complex formation. And excess biotin in the patient's blood can result in falsely high tests results if it's a competitive immunoassay or falsely low results if it's a non-competitive immunoassay. The troponin test happens to be a non-competitive immunoassay, so it leads to falsely low troponin values. With thyroid function testing, excess biotin can lead to falsely suppressed TSH and elevated T3 or T4, leading to the misdiagnosis of hyperthyroidism. It can also lead to misdiagnosis of tumors by suppressing LH, FSH, and ACTH while causing falsely elevated steroid hormone values. The other lab values mentioned in this article that biotin can interfere with include hepatitis serology, HIV serology, beta-HCG, and vitamin D levels. Interestingly, awareness of biotin affecting lab abnormalities did not significantly affect the likelihood of prescribing biotin, and almost half of physicians did not ask patients to discontinue biotin prior to lab testing. The FDA released an updated guideline in November 2019 stating they continue to have concern over these falsely low troponin levels. The author, the article also states that the daily recommended allowance for biotin is 30 micrograms. And at that level, biotin does not typically cause interference with lab tests. To give you an idea of the amount in over-the-counter supplements, the hair and nail supplement Nutrafol contains 3,000 micrograms or 100 times the daily allowance. And Viviscal contains 120 micrograms, or 40 times the daily allowance. The mm. FDA guideline also stated there's insufficient evidence to determine if stopping biotin for a certain number of hours prior to testing will prevent incorrect results. But one of the review articles said that uh, a washout period of 8 to 72 hours has been recommended, but longer washout periods are important for patients taking high-dose biotin and patients with renal impairment since biotin is renally cleared. However, most patients don't plan when they're going to have chest pain and be evaluated for a heart attack, so it would be hard to know to stop the supplement in advance. Um, overall, the results from this study demonstrate that there's a knowledge gap regarding biotin's interference with lab abnormalities, especially with those other than troponin and thyroid tests. And though the FDA warned that biotin interference can result in misdiagnosis and patient death, in uh, a study on biotin literature post-2017 showed that warnings were rarely mentioned and generally not published in high-impact journals. So it's important that we're aware of the risks of biotin. 
I personally don't recommend it given the lack of proven benefit, but if a patient insists on taking a hair or nail supplement, I'll be sure to inform them of these potential adverse effects. That's a good plan going forward. I think that's what I do too. And especially if a patient is high risk for, you know, coronary artery disease, then I typically counsel them that I think the risks of an inaccurate troponin tests really outweigh the potential benefits of biotin. I also thought it was really interesting, you know, we see this definite knowledge gap that these authors showed in this article, and the knowledge gap for patients is even more. Looking just on Amazon on some of the many biotin supplements for sale there, I did find at least one that said, uh, you know, inform your physician before having any lab tests done on the back of it. I thought that was good, but most of the bottles did not have that. So there seems to be some pretty inaccurate or inconsistent supplement regulation, as is the case with that whole industry. Right. Always a, a constant struggle knowing exactly what's in the supplement, and um, most of the time they say they're they're not allowed to say on the supplement like proven to help your hair and nails, but they they for sure market it towards that. Exactly. Well, Catherine, thank you for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. To all our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we are doing and which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at nail disorders. Thank you.